Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. But first, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the latest issue of Shell Magazine that's getting ready to be released. Our feature is Anne Bradbury, the CEO of American Exploration and Production Council. This is a great group that we caught up with that actually is located in Washington, D.C. It's a group that really does help our elected officials understand better energy and energy policy. And right about now, we really need a lot of those organizations to help our elected officials start making better energy regulations to help with these crazy gas prices that we're dealing with. I'd also like to tell you about an upcoming event happening in San Antonio on August the 10th. It is our annual State of Energy in San Antonio, Texas. This year, it will be held at the Embassy Suites. Uh, Our feature is Anne Bradbury, who is coming from D.C. to talk at our State of Energy, along with Sean Strawbridge, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, Mike Howard, the CEO of Howard Energy, and Jason Modlin, who is the president of Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. It's definitely a luncheon that you want to attend. There'll be lots of networking opportunities, as well as great insight and information on the great energy transition that is occurring as we speak. And now it's time for me to welcome on my guest, David Blackman. David, Welcome back to In the Wall Patch Radio Show. Hey, thanks for having me. And let's jump into, we have a lot to talk about, of course, as always, in oil and gas. So let's get started with this climate change bill that <laughs> Joe Manchin has been discussing, the Democrats and oil and gas. There's a lot going on. It has been since months back pertaining to the bill. Can you talk to, tell me a little bit about what is happening with Joe Manchin, the bill? Do you think yeah. there is any headway there? Where, where are we going with this oil and gas bill? <laughs> well, apparently there's a deal, you know, Senator Manchin. Um, but wait a minute, <laughs> hold on. I mean, it, I thought it was dead a long, long time ago. Well, <laughs> you know, Manchin's always been uh, very hard to, to pin down on things. And uh, he has this long history of saying he won't support some Democratic Party effort or another, and then ultimately capitulating when uh, Chuck Schumer puts uh, enough pressure on him to compromise. And uh, so, uh, you know, I've been you know, fairly optimistic that he was going to hold firm on this one, but uh, also knew that uh, in the end, Manchin has this this long history of always giving in, and, and that's what he's done here. So he, it's a $740 billion spending bill that uh, they're not going to call Build Back Better anymore. They're going to call it a, a, a an Inflation Reduction Act which uh, how is that possible well it's not it's absurd it's ridiculous it's um you know it violates every economic principle uh you don't 
raise government spending and raise government taxes into a recession, which is exactly what this bill does. Um, it enacts a bunch of new Green New Deal style subsidies for wind and solar and electric vehicles, which, um, you know, has long been the Democratic goal uh, where energy and environment is concerned. It uh, spends, uh, what, $380 billion uh, on new subsidies for green energy over the span of the next 10 years. Uh, but it also uh, increases royalty rates on, on oil and gas. It increases fees on oil and gas. Uh, it increases, mm. yeah, mm. and the royalty rates going from 12.5% from to 16.75% on federal lands, which is, frankly, I, and I have to say, that's not unreasonable. I know people in the industry are going to get mad at me for saying that, but you know, the, the standard royalty rate on private lands for the last 25 years has been 25%. So raising the government take to 16.75% is not unreasonable on new leases. And it only applies to new leases, which, you know, we know the Biden administration doesn't want to issue any new leases. So, so I, right. I guess in this administration, right. it won't really amount to anything, but, uh, well, but, but let's let's switch, let's talk a little bit about okay so um, this week also we hit numbers that are telling us we are in a recession. That's correct. Recession meaning that we are spending way too much, putting uh, too much taxes out there, and this is just another like cherry on the top. And first. Tell me about that. And then two, do you really think that the Democrats, where do they sit going into November with this? Because by that, you know, they just keep spending, spending, spending. Yeah. Can they spend their way out in November? Well, that's what they want to do. I mean, that's what they think is, is going to be positive for them with their base, okay? A big part of the Democratic problem uh, going into the midterm elections has been this enthusiasm gap that they all the polls show them having compared to the Republicans base voters. The Republican base is very excited, very fired up to get out and vote in November. The Democratic base has been much less so according to all the pollsters. And so the politicians in Washington say, well, you know, if we enact a bunch of new spending, it'll excite our base voters here in the Democratic Party. And, and you know, they may be right about that to some extent. But what this is also going to do at the same time is alienate even more uh, independent voters, which uh, they're already performing terribly with. And so with I, me, someone like me that's in the mid, like, what are we doing continuing to spend it's not yeah. working. The spend doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's right. And, and you know, the, the other part of this is anyone who's ever taken an economics class in college or high school understands that you learn the first or second day in class that the worst thing you can do when your economy is going into recession is to create more government spending and more taxes. 
It's, mm -hmm. it's literally economics 101. And so, you know, for political gain, they're doing this. And Joe Manchin has agreed to this, which is stunning to me. Uh, for political gain, knowing that it's only going to make the economic situation that much worse. And to name it an Inflation Reduction Act is, oh, yes. is yes. such an insult, I think, to everyone. Um, you know, they just think we're stupid and don't under understand. Exactly. Exactly. That what you're saying. Exactly. And so I'm trying to figure out what happens to them in November when this is probably going to be, we are July, August, September, four months away. And it's going to get much worse by then. So where do they go and how? <laughs> and he I, is up for election too, Joe Manchin. Well, so. Yeah, no, he's not up until 2024. So he's he's safe. Um, and he's very popular. Now, Senator Manchin has been playing this game in Washington um, for what, 12 years now, I think, uh, since, uh, no, 14 years since he was first elected as a senator. And he's been playing this same game over and over and over again. It's like every session of Congress, we see him do this. And then ultimately he gives in to whatever Schumer wants. Um, but he's very personally, very popular in West Virginia, despite the fact that West Virginia is a heavily Republican state. Manchin was a conservative Democrat there. He was the governor of the state. Uh, and was a very popular governor, and he just has a lot of personal capital with the voters in West Virginia, and and so he 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 feels like he can do things like this and still get reelected very easily, and he's probably right about that. But um, you know, it's a shame that uh, he does so much damage to the country in the meantime. And so, when you say that damage to the country, but West Virginians they are the same they're part of this country and they don't understand what they're going through and why interesting right, right. let's talk about winners losers in his bill tell me a little bit about what do you think exxon mobil chevron occidental the large large oil and gas companies winners losers small independents which ones win which ones lose yeah um so I think ExxonMobil, actually, when you look at the, the content of this bill, the details in it, is, is a very significant winner in this bill for a couple of reasons. Number one, Exxon is not a big producer in the U.S. offshore or on U.S. federal lands. I mean, they have some production, but they don't have a lot. And so the increase in royalty rates and fees doesn't really impact Exxon all that much. <laughs> At the same time, one of the elements of this $380 billion in Green New Deal spending is money, subsidy money, uh, for carbon capture and sequestration projects, yeah. which has to be a big part of the green energy future uh, if you're really going to have this energy transition. And of course, ExxonMobil has been the world leader in carbon capture for decades now and has, is mounting this huge project along the Gulf Coast and the, the, the Houston Ship Channel uh, to sequester carbon and capture it. And, and so I think Exxon's a big winner. Um, the other companies is probably just a mixed bag for, for the other big oil companies here in the United States. It doesn't really have a big impact on, on 
uh, the Permian Basin, for example, where Chevron's a huge producer. And yeah. uh, so, you know, it's a mixed bag for everyone else, but I think Exxon comes out really well in this. Well, David, that is super interesting. And once again, I'd like to thank you for being a guest with me on this segment. When we return, I will be joined by Fahad Nassar, the official spokesperson for the embassy, Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers invites you to their annual conference on September 14th and 15th at the Hotel Drover in Fort Worth, Texas. The event will feature author and energy expert Alex Epstein during the industry luncheon on September 15th. It's the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers annual conference, September 14th and 15th in Fort Worth, Texas. For tickets and hotel reservation information, go to TexasAlliance.org. That's TexasAlliance.org. And now it's time for me to welcome all my guests, Fahad Nassar, who is the official spokesperson for the embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Fahad, welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. It's good to be with you again, Kim. Thank you. You know, we really appreciate the dialogue, the relationship that we have with you and, of course, the embassy, because it's important that the American people understand the longstanding friendship relationship that we have had with Saudi Arabia. It's we're celebrating, what, 75 years? Closer to 80 at this point, yeah, right? It, it's been a long time and it's been a good relationship. Of course, uh, when you talk about energy, sometimes it can get a little uh testy from time to time but it is good to see that through the years we have managed to have a great relationship and president biden just visited uh the kingdom uh visited with crown prince mohammed bin salaman and i guess the first thing that we all want to know is there was so many media reports it's hard to tell some were good uh most were bad uh, discussing our American president and what happened. But I guess I want to know, what is the position of the kingdom? Was it a successful trip for you guys? And how did, in what ways was it successful, if it was successful? Okay, so, well, first of all, let me start by saying the fact that President Biden chose to visit Saudi Arabia on his very first trip to the Middle East, I think is a testament to the strength of the relationship. As you correctly said, this is a long-standing relationship. Not only has it endured for the past 80 years, but it has continued to strengthen and to broaden and to deepen over that length of time under both Democratic and Republican administrations. In many ways, the relationship is multidimensional so that it includes political cooperation, it includes military cooperation, uh, and that entails not only regular military joint training, but also milita joint military operations periodically. And it also, as you know, includes a very important economic and trade dimension. All of these elements of the relationship were discussed over the weekend when President Biden met with our leadership, both the custodian of the two holy mosques King Salman, as well as His Royal Highness Grand Prince Mohammed bin Salman. At the same time, I think the visit also 
we're hoping will set the stage for the next 80 years of cooperation by looking at a number of the a number of the new challenges that we face both the United States as well as Saudi Arabia but the international community more broadly so I'm talking about things like climate change energy security food security you know pandemics uh and we actually the the visit resulted in 18 different agreements that were signed by various Saudi and uh, American entities that uh, sought to address exactly those kinds of challenges that we're currently facing. One of our senators, Senator Sanders, was uh, pretty criticized President Biden for even going, discussing um, the uh, human rights uh, that are you guys violate Saudi Arabia. But I don't quite see it that way. I see it in interviewing you and a couple of other people on behalf of Saudi Arabia and the kingdom. Um, you guys have made great strides to really ensure that women have rights, um, that it is, um, you, you've taken, you've changed the culture. You guys are attempting to change the culture and you guys are on that path. Can you talk about that? Because I think that that was very unfair for Senator Sanders to say that when that's not actually, if you look at all of the changes that are occurring in Saudi Arabia, it's actually the opposite. Right, so the protection of human rights is enshrined in our laws. It is part of our value system. It is, it is also enshrined in our faith. So we are a signatory to dozens of conventions and agreements that protect the human rights of women, children, the elderly, people with a disability, uh, children, people with special needs. Uh, in addition to that, we have a human rights commission in Saudi Arabia that not only raises awareness about the importance of uh, adhering to laws protecting human rights, but it also investigates alleged violations of human rights. So this is paramount for us. Uh, it is, as I said, at the core of our values and laws. Uh, at, the same, at the same time, as you correctly said, Saudi Arabia is undergoing um, a very exciting transformation that we call Vision 2030. And at the core of this transformation is the empowerment of women, the empowerment of youth. We have passed dozens and dozens of regulations and laws that have not only empowered the private sector to become the engine of the economy, but as you correctly said, that have really empowered women so that they have a chance to succeed both professionally as well as at home. Saudi Arabia's population, I mean, women outnumber men in Saudi Arabia. I don't know the exact number, but it's uh, well over, I think it's 54%, I think, of the population is, is women. More women currently attend universities than men. And over the past few years, we have steadily or opened up just about every sector of the economy. So as we speak, you have women ambassadors, you have women CEOs, you have women, you know, race car drivers, firefighters. Really, I can't think of any sector of the economy, you know, either private or public at this point, where women do not have a, an opportunity to, to join and to excel and to succeed. I wanted to give you that opportunity because there had been some negative spin on that. And I was, wait, hold on, not so fast. They are really, truly recognizing 
and making efforts to uh, it where they where you guys had really maybe been a little shy on women's rights and things. You have made a great stride to try to change that. We're going to get ready for for break, Fahad. But when I come back, we're going to drill down into really one of the reasons why President Biden went to go visit Crown Prince Mohammed was to talk about oil and what was going on. So let's take a quick break. When we get back, talk about that. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers invites you to their annual conference on September 14th and 15th at the Hotel Drover in Fort Worth, Texas. The event will feature author and energy expert Alex Epstein during the industry luncheon on September 15th. It's the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers annual conference, September 14th and 15th in Fort Worth, Texas. For tickets and hotel reservation information, go to texasalliance.org. That's texasalliance.org. Hey, you, do you want to join the fastest growing oil and gas network in Texas? Ma'am, I'm all for growing my business. So you've got my attention. What is it? TEAK is the Texas Energy Advocates Coalition. They hold business mixers to help businesses grow and network. Any cost to join? For the next 90 days, it's completely free. No charge to join. But they do want like-minded individuals to attend who are interested in growing their business and networking. Well, I want to join. Where should I go? Go to shalemag.com slash teak and click on the join link enter your information and we'll get you set up join the texas energy advocates coalition at shalemag.com slash teak today Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is the official spokesperson for the Embassy for Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C., Fahad. And Fahad, thank you for coming back on the show. You are no stranger to us, keeping us updated on what is happening in Saudi Arabia and uh, the kingdom and, of course, what the crown prince is up to pertaining specifically to OPEC, OPEC Plus in Saudi Arabia. And I want to drill down into that. We have a very important meeting coming up in August, early August, OPEC Plus meets again. Out of that uh, meeting that happened with President Biden um, visiting Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, what was achieved and how will it affect the OPEC Plus meeting that's around the corner? Right. So again, at the outset, I think it's important to note that Saudi Arabia has really for decades now has played a central role in stabilizing international energy markets. We, I think there's an expectation uh, among both oil producers as well as consumers for Saudi Arabia to lead. And we have embraced this leadership role. We have done so for decades as members of OPEC. More recently, we have done it through OPEC+. Plus. And uh, as you know, the agreement that was signed between the OPEC Plus members back in April of 2020, I think has proven effective. It brought much needed stability to international energy markets, to crude markets more specifically. And the agreement has a number of stip- stipulations that make it flexible enough to adjust to market fundamentals. I think in in my reading, and certainly that's our position in the kingdom, is that crude markets currently are fairly balanced. What you do have, I think that there's a a refining uh, shortage 
globally, there's obviously global in inflation. There is high demand uh, as nations are recovering from COVID. Obviously, the uh, crisis in Ukraine has also added pressure on, uh, on energy markets and prices more specifically. So, um, you know, the kingdom has, as it has done throughout really its history, will continue to work with its partners, not just in OPEC plus, but this is an ongoing conversation with the United States as well. Um, I want to get a little bit more technical. I'm not sure if you can answer this, though. So OPEC plus, <laughs> OPEC plus does involve Russia. And in light of what's happening with the invasion in Ukraine and, of course, uh, Russian oil uh, being taken off the market, how is that going to affect or will it affect the OPEC agreement that you have uh, with OPEC, I mean, OPEC plus agreement uh, with Saudi Arabia, I mean, uh, with Russia in light of all these new developments? So obviously that the crisis in Ukraine has had uh, an impact on the, the global economy and obviously it's brought a fair amount of uh, destruction and pain and suffering to the people of Europe. The kingdom for its part has reached, reached out to both the leadership of both Ukraine as well as Russia. We maintain good relations with both. We have offered to mediate between uh, the two of them. We believe that the way forward is for a political settlement. settlement. Uh, this is our approach really to any crisis in the region. This offer is still on the table. I believe that uh, just today, His Royal Highness Grand Prince Mohammed bin Salman did speak, did receive a phone call from President Putin. Uh, our foreign minister, Prince Faisal Farhan, spoke to his counterpart in Ukraine not that long ago. So we're hoping that this crisis comes to an end because it certainly has had uh, a very negative impact on not just energy markets, but on the global economy. In general, uh, you know, food security just being one, uh, one example. Has the United States, um, are, uh, any of our agencies uh, released or given any guidance on how to deal with OPEC plus in the way of since it's involving Russia and we have this in, uh, embargo currently? How, how, how does this work out? Right. So as I said, this is an ongoing conversation, uh, not just with the United States, but with all our partners in OPEC plus. As you know, Oil is an international commodity. Something like uh, you know, dealing and stabilizing international energy markets certainly has to be, this has to be a collective effort. No one nation can stabilize energy markets. So this has to be, a, it's, a, it's a global challenge and it needs a global solution. And the global solution that we have now that has proven fairly effective, fairly flexible is this OPEC plus uh, agreement and uh, and again, not only are we you know are we speaking with our partners there, but uh, we continue to speak to the United States as well as other countries to uh, to make sure that markets are stable and adequately supplied. Fahad, when we get back from break, I want to discuss the kingdom that has come up with a kingdom vision 2030 plan recently. Um, and I would like to see if you could give us a progress report on how that vision is, is, is coming along. We do have to take a quick break. You're listening to In the World Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back.
And welcome back to the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Fahad Nassar, who is official spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Fahad, there's been a lot of buzz about the Kingdom Vision 2030, the plan. Um, and so we want, last time we interviewed you, we, we, we didn't have a whole lot. And now that some time has gone by, I'd like to see if you could give us an update on what specifically is this uh, Kingdom Vision 2030, what does it involve, and uh, what, uh, you know, its completion, and, and what do you guys see in the future for it materializing? Sure. So, uh, again, thank you for that question. So, Vision 2030 was actually unveiled by His Royal Highness Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman back in 2016. Its ultimate objective is to lessen the kingdom's dependence on the oil sector by empowering the private sector to become the engine of the economy, and also by developing a number of sectors that have not been developed to their to their full extent because over the years frankly we uh, we expended a lot of our resources into energy and we're obviously trying to broaden for uh, a little bit or significantly from that so right now as as we speak we are investing a lot of resources into into other sectors of the economy so for one thing mining is one of these sectors that has a lot of potential we're expending a lot into one of the the uh, the goals of the vision is actually to transform the kingdom into a, a global logistics hub. After all, Saudi Arabia is strategically located uh, within very close proximity to not not just Europe and obviously uh, between Africa and uh, and Asia as well. And so we have a number of sectors that we are we believe have a lot of uh, potential. So I said mining is one of them. We are investing a lot into renewable energy. Interestingly enough, I think that to a certain extent, when people think of Saudi Arabia uh, and energy, they still primarily think of Saudi Arabia as, as primarily a crude producer. I think we will continue to do that for the foreseeable future. For one, we have some of the world's largest reserves. We also have some of the most economically, uh, most, most economical um, produced uh, crude. So uh, we have a com comparative advantage there. We will continue to do that for the foreseeable future. At the same time, we are we do take climate change very seriously. We are committed to sustainable development. And that's why we are investing a lot of resources into solar. We're investing a lot into uh, wind uh, energy. And we are even producing a new sort of energy called uh, green hydrogen. This is one of the, we have a plant that's already uh, producing and shipping uh, green hydrogen to uh, countries like South Korea and Japan. Uh, but we also, over the past few years, we created entire sectors from scratch. So, for example, we have managed to create a tourism sector from the ground up. And I think here the credit goes to our leadership that took a closer look at Saudi Arabia and correctly concluded that Saudi Arabia has a very interesting mix of both history, not just Islamic, but uh, frankly, even pre-Islamic, uh, sites, as well as we're also obviously we have a number of giga projects and uh, modern uh, innovative uh, projects that are also of interest to the business community globally. Um, so over the past few years, people are beginning to discover Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, granted, I'm a little biased as a Saudi, but I think that we have some very, you know, we, we have a unique blend of uh, historical sites. We have uh, natural wonders. And uh, we, I believe, have a very warm and welcoming people. So, you know, it's this is a this has been, you know, a, an interesting change. Uh, but people are coming to appreciate what the kingdom has to offer and are beginning to see it as a tourism destination. In addition to that, we've also created an entertainment sector 
from the ground up. Saudi Arabia's population is predominantly young. It is 70% is under the age of 30. Our young people have been thirsting for leisurely activities. And uh, a lot of American companies have, frankly, uh, you know, and correctly seen a lot of opportunities there. So over the past few years, not only have we, you know, quadrupled the number of entertainment events, it's actually significantly more than it's, the growth has been exponential. But uh, we, we have opened several hundred movie theaters just in the last couple of years. We are beginning to shoot movies in Saudi Arabia. So this is, uh, this is all a change. Uh, it's a change in the right direction, certainly, as far as we're concerned. Um, but also, you know, at the heart of it is the empowerment of entrepreneurs. And to do that, we've streamlined our regulations. We've made doing business easy in the kingdom. And ultimately, when, not if, we are certainly, we're certain that Vision 2030 will succeed. When it succeeds, I think it will potentially provide a blueprint for other countries in the region, many of which have similar challenges to us. Um, and I think it will raise awareness that if we expend energy and resources into our most valuable asset, which in our case is our human capital, then uh, you know, really good things can happen very quickly. Nefahad, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is about um, the quality of life. And most people do want to live in, uh, in, a, in a place where they have culture, uh, they um, have private uh, ability to privatize their businesses and uh, make money and all of these different things. It's nice to see because this is coming from a very young prince. Um, and so seeing the difference between the age groups, I think, inspires hopefully a lot of other countries in the Middle East to see that, you know, maybe it is time for some change. We are, after all, 2022. And I, I have to say, I, I, I think that... Uh, I would certainly like to go to Saudi Arabia, understand that there's such great change. So all of this should be completed by 2030. That's the vision. Right. I mean, we've already hit some of our targets. So for instance, the percentage of women in the workforce has already exceeded the benchmark we set for 2030. We want to so now, work. Women love to work. <laughs> right. So we've already moved that up. Uh, the percentage of uh, foreign direct investment is uh, increasing steadily. The non-profit, the sorry, the non-oil sector's share of the economy is increasing, you know, steadily. But just going back to one important point that you made, Kim, you said that His Royal Highness Grand Prince Mohammed bin Salman is young, uh, and that's very true. Uh, and here I, I do want to take this chance to just say a couple of words about His Royal Highness because you've, we've all read a lot of, uh, you know, articles about him. But I think what some frankly people on the out, outside of Saudi Arabia, not Saudis, don't understand is part of the appeal of Prince Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is, I think his, his young age is, uh, is a factor. He is essentially the same age as the overwhelming majority of Saudis. He has spent most of his life in Saudi Arabia, and I think that has given him unique insights into the needs of the population. And also Prince Mohammed speaks with candor when it, uh, he speaks with candor about, frankly, some of the mistakes of the past some of the challenges in front of us now, but he also speaks with unrivaled enthusiasm about the potential of Saudi people, especially young people. And that's what makes him incredibly popular with Saudis in general, but especially with the young Saudis. Well, it's definitely, it seems like an exciting time for Saudi Arabia and the changes. Fahad, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the Old Patch Radio Show. And we look forward to you coming back and talking to us 
when we have some more developments, maybe we can get you back after the very important meeting OPEC Plus occurs in early August. Thank you for joining us again on Indie Oil Patch Radio Show. Always a pleasure, again. Thank you so much. Hey, when you're in business, you have to make a lot of tough choices. So let's talk about an easy one, your workers' comp coverage. If you're a propane or butane dealer or operator, you need to join the Lone Star Energy Safety Group through Texas Mutual Insurance Company. As a member, you'll automatically get a discount on your premium, plus you can earn double dividends that will go straight into your pocket. It's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Find out more at TexasMutual.com slash Lone Star Energy. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest on this segment is David Blackman, an expert in oil and gas. David, uh, thank you for joining us earlier in the show. You know, I just finished interviewing Fahad Nassar, who has been on the show many times. And we were discussing when President Biden uh, went to Saudi Arabia that has now since uh, seems to be, oh, yeah, yeah, don't look at that. That was so long ago, which was less than two weeks ago, <laughs> uh, right? Our, my question to you is we have an upcoming OPEC Plus meeting early August, yeah. and our president has just visited Saudi Arabia, which seems to be somewhat of not such a success, and I have not found an outlet anywhere, media outlet, that has said this was a huge success Tell me what your thoughts are. Was a success? And what can we expect coming uh, into the OPEC Plus meeting? Well, I, you know, I, I actually uh, thought the, uh, the trip over to the Middle East that the president had was a pretty dismal uh, failure. And, and, and part of that is the insult. The way he insulted the crown prince of Saudi Arabia by that's what we were yes to shake yes. his hand and uh, I want to talk about this because I really found that offensive. You cannot approach a queen, a king, right. someone that has a long time. I mean, I want to talk about this for our listeners to understand. These countries, this is what they do. They're built off of, um, in their mind, respect is everything of their right. culture. It was a huge insult, and I don't mean to sound that. President Biden uh, did uh, something terribly wrong. It was just such a disrespect to their culture in the way you do not address a crown prince as three letters in their name. Right. And you, know, you don't fist yes, bump them. And, was, you know, I mean, we have 70 years of protocols, diplomatic protocols. Right. With the kingdom. And 80 with them. 80 yeah. years going on. And every president prior to President Biden has observed appropriate protocols, regardless of what the factual situation happens to be at the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was an incredible insult and, and countries, uh, you know, the United States has to recognize that every country has its own traditions, its own pride, national pride. Um, and yes, when you're uh, uh, addressing a Royal, which, which this House of Saud is, uh, you know, you observe the proper protocols, period. And, and you don't do what the president did. It, it was an incredible insult. It's going to damage the relationship we have with Saudi Arabia. There's no question about that. 
And, uh, and, and just as far as, you know, he went over there with some expectation, I guess, that he could uh, convince the Saudis to raise their oil production, but they're producing what they mm -hmm. can produce right now. And right. there's not some switch they can just flip because to turn economic on work, but they're Because the economics work for what they're doing right now. Right. But what was he expecting for them to open up the spigot, drive down the price of oil like we've seen in the past? I mean, what was the point of him going and insulting the crown prince? I, I just can't even, I, I think it was just very typical of this administration that uh, it wasn't a well-planned trip to begin with, the goals were not clear. Um, and, you know, when you just jump in a plane and go off on a trip like that without knowing what you're, without knowing the answers to the questions before you ask them, right? It's like right. being in a trial. You don't ask a question, you don't make a request if you don't know what the answer is going to be. And unfortunately, this president is so out to lunch I, I you know he just does whatever his handlers tell him to do and, exactly wake up and, joe and ask this question yeah. <laughs> i mean it's it's tragic for our country it, it really is and um you know i, I have to, to, you know surviving two and a half more years of this is is going to be a real challenge for our country uh, i, I and, agree with you, david you know. i agree with you so much so so let me ask you um early august opec plus is going to meet what can we expect to hear? Same, same as usual. Did well, Biden yeah. So you, right. I mean, they're at the end of their program. You know, uh, their four hundred thousand barrel per day increase every month over eighteen months. That program is coming to an end. Uh, all the countries other than Saudi Arabia and maybe uh, the United Arab Emirates are completely out of excess production capacity. Uh, the the group as a whole missed its quotas, undershot its quotas by 2.8 million barrels of oil per day during the month of July. And and so I'm afraid, and, and I don't I'm, I'm, I don't think this is a good thing. I'm afraid that the utility of the OPEC plus arrangement is reaching an end because because of the reality that most of the countries don't have any spare capacity to put onto the market anymore. And um, that means that the market is just kind of now without any sort of balancing act that OPEC plus has provided over the last four years. So I, at their next meeting, I think it's just a kind of, I mean, it almost has to just be a status quo meeting uh, because let's, they don't have anything else they can really do. Okay. Let's, very interesting, very sad that we are at this point. Let's switch gears and talk about the strategic petroleum reserves. Recently hit mainstream media that he's released twice. Yeah. And most, a lot of it has gone to China. Yes. The Department of Energy issued its fifth emergency notice of sale of uh, oil, crude oil from the strategic Permian uh, reserves. What is happening in D.C. with, well, first of all, talk about the importance of it. We've, we we are releasing it and China is buying it. What the yeah. heck is going on? Well, and that's the, you know, that's the dirty little secret that's not so secret anymore is, is right. all that oil has gone to China uh, to be refined in much dirtier refineries than we have in the United States, by the way. Uh, what happened to it, climate change? 
Well, that they, they don't care about that. That's all just okay. propaganda at just this point. Yes. And, and, you know, it's coming to an end. The thing we have to be concerned about here in the United States is that program's coming to an end. It has kind of propped up the market and had a diminishing effect to some extent on prices. And pretty soon it's going to come to an end and that million barrels a day that's been going on to the market is now going to stop. At the same time, OPEC plus is out of spare capacity. And by the way, this week, uh, refiners like Valero told us they're not seeing any reduction in consumer demand for their products. Ooh. So that means demand's continuing to rise. And that just means that the market is going to become increasingly undersupplied as we go into the fall and winter. Mm -hmm. And that's going to mean higher prices at the pump again. And, uh, $5 a, a gallon could be, uh, you know, back on the agenda for our country again, as we get towards the end of the year. So it's wow. a tough situation. It is for the American consumer. What I believe is come November, there is going to be hell to pay yeah, for not listening to the pain coming from the American consumer and the Democrats are going to learn a lesson about not being connected into the American public. David, thank you so much for joining me, being a guest, and we look forward to having you back on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.